The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, I hope you all have had a good week thus far. Um, I have very bad feet, and so my feet have been aching for the last couple of days. Of course, the cold weather I know has something to do with that. So I kind of been dealing with that for a couple of days. Woke up this morning with a backache, and uh, you know that just happens again. I think that comes with age. And then I get here tonight, and Alan Webster's here, and I have a stomach ache. <laughs> We're talking about the unpardonable sin, and Alan has written quite a bit of material, I think, in the past on that. Maybe even a tract or something to that effect, but. We have been studying this for a number of weeks already, and Lord willing, we will kind of get through the context tonight. So if you want to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, we'll be in chapter 3, verses 20 through 30, roughly, is about where we'll be. Chapter 3, 20 through 30, and kind of more or less picking up we left off. Now, it's been a couple of three weeks since I've been able to teach. Uh, we had singing, I taught, then we had singing, then I was in Indiana in a gospel meeting, and that went well, and Mike covered for me. Uh, when I asked him to cover for me weeks before that, I did not realize he would be having surgery the next morning. So I know it took a little extra courage and strength to do that, but I'm glad that he's made progress and hopefully his recovery will be complete from that. Uh, but when we were here a couple of three weeks ago, we were kind of making our way through the context. And I'll admit to you, as a Bible student, I know that you're in the same boat as I. Uh, oftentimes when you go back and look at something again, read something again, study something again, examine it, whatever you would call that, expose it, oftentimes you come to a few different conclusions. And so some of the conclusions I'm going to draw with you tonight will be slightly different than that which we discussed a few weeks ago. Of course, this context uh, falling out to be what we generally considered, I'm putting quotes around that, we generally would consider to just have to do with the unpardonable sin or the sin unto death or the sin against the Holy Spirit. Or I like to quote some of my instructors in Memphis, he used to talk about the ungetoverable sin. And I think that's really about where this falls. And I, I still believe that this context, as well as the parallels we're going to go to here in a few moments, are absolutely teaching that, absolutely illustrating that. But I also believe, as I've kind of looked back through it even farther, that if that is all that we see in this context, we've missed so much else. And I think mainly in what we're going to try to get to tonight, and it'll take a, a while, but I'm going to try to move quickly and, and uh, you know, we'll try not to pause as much, but... I think ultimately what we get to in this context as well as the parallels of it is that what Jesus is truly trying to teach or trying to illustrate or trying to show us through this is His absolute authority. And that, of course, is what He has been doing throughout this book thus far. Only three chapters. We're like 22, 25 weeks in, something like that. Uh, but I think that's what He's been doing throughout this book. And I will hopefully will be able to show you and illustrate that to you tonight. Uh, keep in mind, and I want, I want you to turn with me there. If you'll go back to Mark chapter 1, uh, that's kind of where we're going to begin scrolling through this. Now, I don't know how your Bibles, the copies of your Bibles will be laid out, but for me, Mark 1 falls about middle ways of that left-hand page, and I can still see the tail end of Matthew's account from this. Of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke being those synoptics or those summarizing Gospels, uh, they tend to not only agree with one another, they would do that by inspiration anyway, but they tend to run fairly parallel. And so if we see something that's occurring in one or the other of those three of the four, 
uh, John being just slightly different because of his purpose in mind, uh, we can oftentimes draw a lot of conclusion from that. So just because of the fact that my copy of Scripture is laid out in that way, marked beginning on that bottom half of the left page, if I look straight back up the page into Matthew's latter chapter, that would be the 28th chapter of Matthew, in verse 18, you'll be very familiar with that context. And this is not to say that Matthew leads into Mark, but Matthew certainly sets up what we would read into Mark. And it says this, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, Watch the phrase now. All power, or authority, if you will, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now the key phrase I like to use in this, you've heard it probably 200 times, is the fact that we cannot get any aller than all. And so if he is given by God all power, or in this case all authority is probably a better description of that, we know that's going to be the case. And it won't matter whether or not you're reading uh, Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, or even for that matter John, albeit John is setting up more the deity of Christ than anything there, where they're looking at other aspects of what he does. Every one of those come to that same conclusion. Every one of those accounts draw to that same end to prove the authority that Jesus had. Of course, that authority came unto him not only by God and through God, but because of God. Because you remember the account we've read in other cases from John 1, letting us know right straight out of the gate that in the beginning was the Word. What's the Word there? Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We read in that 14th verse that the Word, W-O-R-D, Word referring to Jesus, quote, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, how do we typically... Um, describe or relate to the three personalities. I like to be a little bit clearer with that word, but the three personalities of the Godhead. How do we oftentimes describe them? God the Father being the first that we name at least. God the Son or the Word in this case, the way John puts it. And then of course God the Spirit or Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. And that's the way we typically look at that. I sometimes illustrate those three personalities of the Godhead to say that we have God the planner, we have Jesus the performer, and then we in turn have uh, the Holy Spirit the proclaimer of that. I don't think that summarizes any of those, but it gives a little bit of definition to them and shows forth the roles that they were involved in. But you and I also understand that they work together in unity, right? They did that in creation. They did that throughout Scripture. They've done that throughout all the time. They work together in that. And so when we hear here that Jesus, I'm looking at Matthew's account that we just read. When we read here that Jesus has been given all power, all authority by God the Father, what might that include? Everything. So it doesn't matter what the ends ends up being, what builds into that ends is going to point into that fact. And so I want to illustrate that with you just reviewing. We're not going to have time to read it. I'm a terrible reader anyway. You know that. But I want to kind of review with you what has occurred thus far, just thus far. I'm talking three chapters in the Gospel according to Mark, what has occurred thus far, and the different ways that His power has been seen. Remember John said, We shall behold, or we beheld His glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the first place, in John chapter 1, 
And this in my mind is chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We broke the book down different ways, but this is a way to looking at it now. The first thing we discover in which his power was given authority or his power was seen or expressed has to do with his designation. What was Jesus deemed or designated to be in the very first chapters we studied 25 weeks ago? The Son of God. And that proclamation or that validation that we saw in those first 11 verses of chapter 1, that was sent out directly from the mouth of God. You remember how that kind of came down the pipes? You read across the page there in chapter 1. You get as far as verse 8. Uh, already John the Baptist explained that there's going to be one coming that's mightier than he whose shoes he's not willing to even stoop down and loose. And then in verse 8 it tells us that John had Jesus approach him and it says this, Indeed, I baptize you with water. But he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth, verse 9, and he was baptized of John and Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit of God descending upon him as a dove or like a dove. And it came a voice from heaven and said what? Thou art, King James speak at least, you are or thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now again, when we looked at that, I saw that as validation. I saw it as God's proclamation. But I really think it is really God's designation as to who He was. Jesus' authority in the first place, first 11 verses, is proven right there in His designation. Now you pick up from that. Chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. That's the next divide right here. His power, his authority is likewise seen as he handled the devil. Of course, remember that account. Now, in Mark's account, it's only that one, really that one verse that deals with that specifically. But something led up into it. It says, once he had been given the Spirit, I'm looking in verse 10. He came and God proclaimed him to be who he was. Verse 11, verse 12, it said, The Spirit immediately driveth him out in the wilderness... And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, and then watch the phrase, tempted of Satan, a.k.a. the devil, and there was a wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. Now, we did not find the expanded uh, point of view or the expanded account of that here, here in Mark's account. He's very brief in that. But we did find that as we looked at it in also Luke's account, Luke 4, verses 1 through 11. We saw it as well. In, um, I'm sorry, Matthew's account 1 through 11, Luke 4, 1 through 13, and we saw it as well in 1 John, just being a divine commentary of it, beginning in verse, or chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. So his authority, again, is seen in how he handles the devil. Next place. Picking up there in the latter part of this, chapter 1, verses 22, or 21 and 22, another shorter passage. But we also learn there that his authority is seen in his direction. Look at what it says. And when he came into Capernaum straightway on the Sabbath, he entered in the synagogue, and they were astonished at his doctrine and taught as one having authority, not as one of the scribes. I think I just said direction, but his doctrine. His doctrine proved his authority. Now Jesus' teaching was not... Uh, so far fetched to be so far removed from God that no one would ever recognize it. 
But when Jesus taught, he had such an authority, he didn't have to quote anyone outside of himself. And I hope we illustrated that back then. He didn't teach like the scribes did. He'd refer to one of his cohorts or one of his companions. He didn't point to them as being official or any type of authority. He set his own authority of himself. Now when we get in the account later, and we've already seen if we studied Matthew a long time ago in this, the Sermon of the Mount as we call it, Jesus even makes several statements throughout the Sermon of the Mount where he says, You have heard that it hath been said, but I say also unto thee. And of course he would show something or prove something to them. So he has authority in his doctrine. In the next place, he has authority over, we saw this, verses 23 to 27, over demons. Now he does this a few different times, but the first illustration of that we found there in chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 23, and there was in his synagogue a man with an unclean spirit who cried out, saying, Let us alone, for what have we to do with thee, Jesus announces? Or thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, verse 25, and said, Hold thy peace, come out of him. So did Jesus have power over the demonic? Yes. As the demonic really would just have been cohorts or workers along with Satan anyway, he proved that. He proves that again and again and again. And then we drop down in the context here, really picking up in verse 29 through 34, we learn something else about him, and that is he also showed his authority over disease. How many people was, and I don't mean by this a number, how many people were, was Jesus able to heal? What were his limitations from what we can tell? They're non-existent. It didn't matter who it was. We've seen lame, we've seen blind, we've seen alt, we've seen deaf, we've seen dumb, we've seen deaf, you know, all these diseases. Matter of fact, in the context there, we read about that specifically. Verse 34 said, and he healed many, as many as were sick with diverse, King James speak, various, all kinds of diseases. So his authority is shown. Look at the next part of this. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. He likewise shows his power over, in that case, damnation. When he heals this man who is lame, this man who is, quote, sick of the palsy, verse 3, remember what the first thing he said to him was concerning his condition. Did he first talk to him about his physical mal malady or issue, but what? His spiritual, his sin. The first thing Jesus did to illustrate his authority, and as a matter of fact, verse 10, I believe, really uh, brings that out clearly here in chapter 2. Here's what the statement is. Jesus speaking, he said, That you may know, that is absolutely be assured of, that the Son of Man, referring to himself, hath power on earth to forgive sins. So what's Jesus proving? His authority, in this case, over damnation. Pick up behind that, very next context. Chapter um, 2, verses 12 through 17. He has authority, he has power over his disciples. Look at what he does here. You remember this account from studying it long ago. Jesus comes into this man named Levi, and as he is approached by this man Levi, ultimately he chooses him and picks him how? Or from what group? The publicans, 
the tax collectors, the people who would have been rejected, disregarded, discounted, whatever you would say from society, who had absolutely been repulsive to all those around him because of what he had done in life, what he was doing. Jesus can choose a disciple. That shows his authority as well because once the uh, Pharisees and others gather in there, they come into the presence of not only him and Levi, but other publicans. What was their first accusation and attack on him? I'll paraphrase it. Jesus, what in the world are you doing sitting in this room with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners? Why are you here? Because he had the authority to be there. He could choose his disciples out of any group. Move a little bit farther. Next context. Not only that, he had authority when it came to discipline. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 28. This is where we talk about fasting for three weeks. And the ability that he had, according to what he told them at least, which was true, he said that he was the Lord over the what? The Sabbath. Therefore, he has authority over the Sabbath, and by the cause of these men coming to him and fasting, and fasting in his presence, and the accusation they made against he and his disciples were, they don't have any, any authority themselves for even picking the grains or the corn as they walk through the field. He said, no, I have authority even over your devotions. And of course, we looked at those two different types of fast, the one fast being the committed fast, which would have been the fast connected directly to or aside of uh, the Day of uh, Atonement, and then the committed fast, which were more or less voluntary from that point, and sometimes participated for, as he was illustrating there, for all the wrong reasons. But nonetheless, he still maintained authority. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, next context. He also showed them, or proved to them, his authority in his decisions. He chooses those other of those disciples, ultimately 12 of them. Did he choose the right people from what man's perspective may have been? You can shake your head this way on that one. No, no. But he gets to select them. As a matter of fact, one of the verses that stands out in this, just looking at, again, the context here of his decisions. Look at chapter uh, 3, verse 13. In verse 13, he goeth unto a mountain and calleth unto him. What's that next phrase? Those who he would, he gets to decide. And so any attack that is placed upon him or placed upon his disciples, which they would be some, right, in that same context, any accusation that is made, Jesus can say, by my authority, I can do that. And of course he could. Then we turn the page, for me at least, you may not have to turn the page, but right after choosing the disciples through verse 19, verse 20 through 30, where we are finally, he shows his power, he shows his authority over dissension. You say, what do you mean by the word dissension? They are completely divided among themselves. And he proves it. The scribes, the Pharisees that come to him, the ones that accuse him in the context we'll be reading again in a moment of being quote-unquote Beelzebul or Beelzebub, depending on what translation you're looking at. Those who accuse him of doing what he did by the power of Satan, if you will, just to illustrate it, and not by the power of God. Those people, he looked at those people and he said, look, there cannot be that type of division in God. There's not even that type of division or dissension among the ranks of Satan and the demons. 
And that's the illustrations he gives right here. And then we won't be to it on this week, but I had to finish chapter 3 for my own mind. And that is he likewise expressed his power authority, verses 31 to 35, in his determinations. And that is when his family comes to him and they're standing outside the door, I suppose, or at least somewhere out of his presence, and his own disciples come in and say, look, you've got your family standing out here. They're waiting for you. They're calling for you, verse 31. Jesus says to them, verse 34, look around about. And they that sat him, and he said, behold, my mother and my brethren. So he gets to make those determinations. And just like that is today, you and I are not chosen by God by blood kinship, but we're chosen by God based on his determination that he sees because of our obedience and faith in him as to whether or not we are of him. And so his authority is seen. Only to read that list. The designations, the devil, the direction, the doctrines, the demons, the disease, the damned, the disciples, the disciplines, the devotions, the decisions, the dissensions, and the determinations all show His authority. Why does all that matter? Why, why spend 20 minutes to make a list to show that I can put a lot of D words together? Some of them were not very appropriate, but I got as close as I could in a minute. Why that? Because when any one, period, when any individual looks at Jesus, knowing well by this time, in only three chapters, three, if you will, I don't know how long the period of time was, but in a very short span of time, he had given them every single evidence as to what type of authority he had, and they will deny it. And uh, kind of one of the things I want to add to that tonight, because I really kind of thought about it more, I guess you'd say, that the benefit of having three weeks between the last session and this one is three weeks. All right, three weeks. And uh, so three weeks of time to continue to examine whatever and try to illustrate in my mind so I can share that. But when Jesus could not be denied, their only means of attacking him was to degrade him. When he could not be denied, all that was left to do was to degrade him. And that's what they try to do. None of these miracles, none of these positions, there were 13 I named out of authority that had been proven, even thus far, in only Mark's account. We didn't flip, we didn't flop, we didn't look anywhere else, although most of those are paralleled in the other Gospels. None of them could be overcome. None of them could be denied, but they could degrade that if they could make the people believe that he was of the devil. Because they weren't willing to attribute his authority to the God of heaven whom he was. They weren't willing to do that. And so in looking back at this passage, we'll just read back through it quickly and we'll just have to get, what, get done what we get done. But beginning in verse 21... 
remind you, it says this, And when his friends heard of it, and of course Jesus has chosen these disciples, preceding context, he cast out demons right before that. When they heard of all the things that he had done thus far, basically, when they heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. We don't know what is wrong with Jesus, but he's not in his right mind. Let's pull him out of the crowds. Let's get him away from the multitudes. Let's keep him safe, and let's try to figure out what his problem is. In today's language, we might call that what? Intervention. They want to intervene in Jesus' life and get him away from the throngs of people, which we know preceding context, the multitude, verse 20, cometh together again so that he could not as much as eat bread. Jesus couldn't sit down and have a, a, a decent meal because they're there and they're there and they're there. And the majority of them preceding context, chapter 2 as well, were there because he had healed those diseases. That's why he'd been up all night that night, healing everyone from the town, everyone that came in contact, everyone that was available. He healed, he healed, he healed. He took care of those people. But then we get down to this point, and even his friends come in, probably related to his family from right up across the page for me, by the way, verse uh, 31. But his friends come in and said, look, he's beside himself. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if there's too much you can put into this. Uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, of course, work together as cohorts and such most of the time. But when it says the scribes came down from Jerusalem, to me, that implies a lot of effort on their part. They had continuously followed him. We know that. They had oftentimes been present where he was in order to serve the purpose of trying to cause him to stumble or trying to discredit or disregard or degrade in this case everything that he was doing. But they had come down from Jerusalem. Now, it's not seen here, but through some different studies you can do in just following the patterns of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then oftentimes including the Herodians. All four of those groups, the Essenes were a fifth that were rarely mentioned, but those main four groups that were divided against Jesus, in so many cases, they came to him with specific questions. And I just imagine, now this is my imagination, that's my disclaimer, they step up to the podiums and in the midst of a multitude, they ask him questions. And I think, my opinion, many of them popped their suspenders and said, we got it. And in some of those accounts, take, for example, uh, the accounts listed in Mark chapter 10, parallels with that as well, where they come and ask Jesus, you know, what can we do to inherit eternal life? Those types of questions. Oftentimes that was either lawyer and or scribes that came to him, and they basically were the last straw, the last people, the last authority, quote-unquote, of men who they thought could handle Jesus. So the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Now look at the accusation. That's the first part of this. For he hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils he casteth out devils. Now, Beelzebub, this is just keeping on the most broadest plane. What do we think about when we hear the phrase or the word Beelzebub? I tried to emphasize that a little bit. What do you think of? Think about the devil immediately. There's some evidence to that. There's obviously our understanding of that comes along. But Beelzebub 
putting the B on there, trying to make it prominent for you. Beelzebub was a reference to uh, the Lord of the high places. Now, this is taking you way back into some other studies, particularly Old Testament studies. What often took, took place in the high places in the Old Testament? Idol worship. The groves, the high places. So at the least, okay, at the least on the surface, they may have referenced him as in, okay, we got, we're dealing with Satan here. At the next level, they probably looked at him and potentially said, according to the King James translation, and New King James, and I think ASV and ESV as well, they look at him and they say, you are coming here as an authority from Beelzebub, the Lord of the high places, the idols. The New American Standard Version translates this word a little differently, and in this particular case, a little bit more accurately, and that is to say they did not speak to him and call him Beelzebub, but Beelzebul. There's bub and there's bull. Now, that's not the way you say it, but I'm trying to emphasize there. Beelzebul. Say, so what is the difference? You've got the Lord of the high places, the idols, but Beelzebul is the Lord of the dunghill. They put him down. Now, why does Jesus have to handle what I'm calling here their accusation with the series of interrogations as he does that led to his illustration that drew his conclusion that if you commit a sin against the Holy Ghost, in this case, the Holy Spirit, it is ungetoverable. Because they looked straight in the face of God in the body, Jesus Christ himself, and said, you are no better than a dunghill. Or an idol. Or the devil. There's no positive statement in that. There's no way that Jesus can just stand there under these types of attacks is what they are, under these accusations, under these degrading remarks, and just stand there and not give answer to that. Now we have times when Jesus was silent. Different moments. You think about the kangaroo courts he went through at times. There were times when Jesus just held his mouth. But you know what that regarded? His life. When it came to the Spirit, when it came to God, when it came to His authority, He answers every time. Check that out. If it's just dealing with Him potentially losing His life, His physical life, He may or may not give answer. But He will not stand cowardice in front of those who try to attribute the things of God to no more than a dunghill to no greater than Satan himself. And so he takes on that. Yes, Mike? You made a statement a minute ago, I wanted to write it down. You said when they couldn't do something, they degraded him. When they could not, in that case, deny him. When they could not deny his identity, they degraded him. Right, they degraded him. Mm -hmm. They could not die. Uh, yeah, authority is what we're looking to at the 13 things, yes. 
which his miracles were ungetoverable, every one of those. They couldn't deny the miracles, so they attacked him. Right. And said the miracles were coming from Beelzebub. Right. So to continue to read verse 22, the scribes had come down from Jerusalem, said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils he cast out devils. Then Jesus commits to no less than five interrogative questions. Look at what they are. These are statements that seem to be true or seem to be understood anyway. And he called unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Now in the English, that's got a question mark on it. What's their answer to that? He wouldn't. If he could, he wouldn't. Question two. If a kingdom, verse 24, is divided against itself, it cannot stand. True or false? That's true. Now, that's not Cliff's true and false. Cliff's true and false are always true. Okay, let me give you that little handy thing. I challenged him on that one day, and he said, I try to do false, and I just can't get it to come out. But they're always true. This one is too. Number three. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. True or false? True. Number four. If Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath it in. True or false? True. And then he comes with the last here. In the illustration of such, number five, he gives it this way. He said, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. And so with this accusation comes these interrogations. There are four of them leading to the fifth, which is by the way of illustration. And he says there, if anyone's going to have authority over another, what must they do? Bind them first. So whether or not you see that on the one hand as being Satan attempting to bind Jesus and fails, or whether you see the opposite of that, Jesus attempting to bind Satan and being successful, the same is true. No strong man can be overcome and his goods be plundered except the one who comes to the strong man meet with someone who's stronger. Now there are parallels to all of this. So if we tried to break this down a few weeks ago, remember what we were doing. We were talking about the problems first. The problem is he's being accused of being no more than Satan, if not worse. We talked about the passages, which are here in Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, is the most direct from right here. And verily I say unto you, that sins shall be given unto the sons of men, and blasphemies, whatsoever thou shalt say, shall be blasphemed, and he shall be blasphemed. And he, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness but is in danger of damnation. That's the passage right here, but that comes in the midst of their own positions. Why would Jesus say that? We're nowhere near concluding, unfortunately. Why would Jesus look at men and say, okay, you may be able to sin against the Son of Man, to sin against a human and be forgiven, but you cannot sin against the Holy Ghost and be forgiven. Why? Because they had absolutely denied all authority of Jesus. Now there's no question in my mind or yours, I'm sure, that when Jesus came down in bodily form, bodily form, he came down as God. 
But there's also no question that once he was down here in the, in the person of God, if you will, the Word, becoming flesh, that he also, at that point of baptism that we read about in Mark chapter 1, received what from heaven? Authority, but also what else? Look back at the passage. You're saying it over there. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost. Indeed, John said, I baptize you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And then we see the conclusion of that. And a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Coming right behind verse 10, which says, And straightway Jesus coming up out of the water, when he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. So their denial, their degradation against the Son of God, Jesus, was not only a degradation of Him, but a degradation of everything the Spirit was able to do. Meaning everything the Spirit could proclaim. What evidence do we have for God in this world outside of, I understand, and I'm not trying to overdo it, but I know we see uh, the glory in, in all the his creation and such, but what evidence do we have to examine, to study, to look into on a constant, continuous basis as a blessing of the providential revelation of God. What do we have? The Word inspired of God through the means of the Spirit. They stood in the eyes of Jesus and denied every ounce of authority that He, nor God, nor the Spirit had. And then obviously, what's the conclusion? You can't be forgiven of that. If you will not be willing to admit to who I am and to my authority, Jesus, and my, my wording would be like this, I don't know what else to do for you. I don't know what your end will be. We're not near through that. How we just spent another 40 minutes and still didn't get through the verse we tried to get to, I don't know, but thank you for your participation.